0: Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute, and I have the great privilege of being the host. My name is Randy Newman. I serve as a senior fellow for apologetics and evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute, and my conversation partner today is my friend Christy Mayer. Christy, welcome.
1: It was great to be with you, Andy. Thank you so much for this invitation. It's, it's a real joy to be able to have this conversation with you.
0: So if you can't, if you haven't picked that up, Christy is from across the pond, as they say. Uh, Christy and I met several years ago when I was doing some work together with Solus Ministry and Apologetics Ministry. Some of you may be familiar with Andy Bannister, and he's uh, he, he was the founder of that. I, I think he's still connected. Um, Christy is now a PhD student in philosophy and theology, looking at the intersection there. So, um, today our uh, the question that matter is what, what do we need to know about apologetics and evangelism today? How are, how are things different? But, but before that, Christy, tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you get into these very, very rich and important topics?
1: Oh, thank you for asking, um, well, I think it all started for me when I first began looking into the questions of surrounding Jesus and who he is. <laughs> I, I was brought up in a Christian family, but I'm originally from Hungary. So we moved over to the UK when I was oh, quite young, but between kind of six and 10. And my, my adopted dad died very suddenly when I was 11. And that left me with huge questions you know, about who is God? What about suffering? Can God be good in the face of such suffering? And that journey into those questions led me into a lot of anger um, and a lot of confusion as I encountered what I felt at the time were kind of very cliched answers and responses and people didn't really know what to do with it. And so... They were trying to give their best response, but I just felt like that was just a bit of a smokescreen, and they didn't really understand their faith. But a few years after that, I was reading through the Gospels just for myself, and my mum, my mother, still has in her diary that I was up late one night reading Mark's Gospel, and um, after that, I just thought, yeah, I I can't sit on the fence. Why am I so angry with someone whom I don't think exists?
0: Mm. So it's mm.
1: really into it for me is that I saw apologetics and evangelism as the greatest form of pastoral care for my own soul and that's kind of left me with a I hope a lifelong desire and passion you know if that isn't too much of an overused term to want to continue pursuing those questions so then I had more questions and then I kind of pursued those and I think evangelism and apologetics really has helped me strengthen my own faith as well as communicate it with others so that was really the personal route into it and then the professional route kind of came came a little bit later I I was studying philosophy and theology as an undergraduate my my master's was in kind of philosophy of religion so that was when I started to think about well gosh there are all these other religions and what do I do with that as a Christian um how can I say that one is right and one is wrong is that is that right or wrong in and of itself? Um, What about these competing truth claims? Do all religions lead up the same mountain to the same God or not? And so that's when I started to write a little bit more um, in that area. Um, And then after that, I worked for a mission organisation. I then started uh, my PhD towards the end of that. And now I'm a lecturer here at um, Oak Hill Theological College in in North London, where I teach um, evangelism and apologetics Mm. um, ethics a couple of other things. So that was, that was my personal routine, And then that complemented my, my, my professional kind of academic thinking, because I just wanted to keep pursuing those questions and ideas.
0: Oh, this is this is wonderful. And and I, I'm embarrassed that um, we met several years ago. I've known you for a while. I didn't know that part of your story. And um, how, so how old were you when you became a Christian?
1: I was a teenager. I was Maybe sixteen, seventeen. It was around. It was around that time.
0: Yeah. yeah, you know that that path from anger because of suffering, anger at God, anger at a God that maybe we even say people say they don't even believe in that God. You know, there's that famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, "I, I, I believe that God did not exist, and I was angry at Him for not existing." Um, he was angry at the God he said he didn't believe in for, oh, 20 years after his mother died. Hmm. But, you know, there there are so many people in our world who, uh, who are in that spot. They've seen terrible evil, real suffering. I, I, we wouldn't make light of it at all. It's real suffering, real pain. And they're angry at God or they say they don't believe in God. And a lot of that is motivated by anger. And yet, you came through that path to eventually say, "No, wait a minute." Um, yeah, I've seen evil, but but uh, am I putting words in your mouth? Is this saying too much? That that even in the midst of that, it it makes more sense to believe in this God, even if I still have pain and struggles and questions. Is that fair? Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely, Randy. I mean, you've you've probably found this for yourself as well, and. Um, you know thinking about C.S. Lewis one of the things that really struck out to me stood out to me as I was reading his work during that time as well it was you know his famous aphorism that you know you cannot call you don't know if a you cannot call a straight line crooked if you don't have a concept of it being of a straight line
0: yeah and, right
1: and that that was one of the things that got me intellectually I I think what I was confronted with was with jesus the god man who suffers for us uh-huh and that was that that i couldn't escape that reality and so that was when my intellectual questions of well how can you know how can a good god exist in the face of, of evil and suffering the the incarnation and the cross just sliced right through that mm. and i didn't know what mm. to do with that yeah and so, I just realized that I could I could only really suffer if a good God existed to make sense of my suffering so that I can say that this is actually evil. I can actually yeah. look it in the face and say this is evil.
0: Uh, um, so So do you do you tell your story of faith in your book? Let me tell our readers, uh, Christy has written a book, uh, a really good one. It's called More Truth: Searching for Certainty in an uncertain world. Um it's real nice and short in case people like short books. Um, I do. Do, do, you, do you share your story in here?
1: No, I'm afraid I don't. So that little book was, was written for kind of young Christians who were starting to go along to church, you know, a little bit involved in stuff. Yeah. Then we're kind of thinking, does 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 Christianity make sense in the face of like post-truth and pluralism and relativism and stuff? So it's really just a little primer into that big question of how can we how can we know things um confidently rather than certainly. So it, it kind of goes into different questions around that rather than my own personal story. But maybe that's something else that I could write another time, who knows? But I um yeah, it's certainly a key part of my own of my own relationship with the Lord. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um I, I do want to encourage you to tell that story. Um people need to hear it. Um I I'm finishing up a book that's telling a whole bunch of stories. Um, mm. but I but I tell them underneath the banners of we need to wrestle with certain questions. So I have a whole chapter chapter about the problem of suffering. And I tell some stories of people who who, because of suffering, walked away from the faith. But because of suffering, they, they they came to faith. I mean, it's interesting the 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 same crisis or the same trouble or difficulty moved people in different directions. And um, you know, um, we're getting off on tangents, but th- but that's kind of the way this these podcasts go. So um, <laughs> either at this point, either our listeners are saying, yeah, I know, I know. That's that's why he drives me crazy. Or no, I, li- I like those little rabbit trails. No, go for it. So, um, several years ago, I was invited to speak about the problem of evil. What, mm-hmm. How can we believe in a good God in the face of evil and suffering? And I was at George Mason University. And toward the beginning, uh, so I was trying to say, you know, a lot of times it's it's non-religious people. Who will look at religious people, whether they're Jewish or Christian or or any kind of faith, and that you know how can you believe in evil in a good God in where there's so much evil and suffering? And then mm-hmm. I said what I thought was just sort of a very obvious statement. I said, but you know, the problem of evil and suffering is a problem for everyone. It's a problem for right. for people of whatever faith and no faith and atheists. And the students started applauding. <laughs> I thought, wasn't <laughs> that brilliant of an idea? I mean, actually, they didn't applaud. They they all started snapping their fingers, and I wasn't mm-hmm. quite aware that this was sort of a new, cool, hip way of applauding. And I had to look to a friend in the front row and I'm like, well, like, did I just say something really bad? Or he said, no, no, <laughs> that's kind of like applaud. Like, oh, but but that's that for for the person who's walked away and who's angry, it's still a problem. It, mm-hmm. What do we do in this world with pain and suffering? Where do we turn? And and we need both help in answering the question, but we also need help with dealing with the pain. So, so we, we need an answer to the why question, but... We also need an answer to the "how" question. How how do I get through it? How do I deal with it? Anyway, I'm really sorry. I'm doing too much talking on this conversation. No,
1: Ronnie, I wanted to ask you: How do we deal with it? How do you how do you respond to that question?
0: Oh my! Well, you touched on it a little bit ago. You talked about, um, I, I think you made a distinction between confidence and certainty. And uh, I, and when I hear that, I think absolute certainty. I, I don't think it's something that mere humans can have. I think that it's very arrogant for us to think I have to have absolute 100% certainty. Um, I, I I don't know whether God has given that to us. He hasn't given us an absolute certain answer. He has given us a very confident lots of truth so we can connect to him. And And how we deal with it is we we cling to him for hope and strength and peace, even with an incomplete answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I quote Tim Keller a whole lot. He has you know, that very difficult book of his about pain and suffering. But in there, and I'm going to butcher the quote now because I don't have it in front of me, but he, um, he says that um, we don't have a complete and total answer. But what we do have is a person we can cling to, a savior who conquered death, who suffered in our place. And so um, we can know with confidence that this God will save us if we've put our trust in him and we can have eternal life. And then Keller says, Now someone will respond to what I just say and say, Yeah, but that's only half, that's only part of an answer. And he said, Yes, but it's the part we need. Hmm. And, and so I live without a complete answer. I live with, uh, I don't understand it all. I, I have I have part of an answer. I mean, we as believers, the, we who believe the Bible is God's revealed truth, well, we believe there is such a good thing, uh, such a thing as goodness. There is a devil who causes all sorts of problems. We are fallen, broken, sinful people. We live in a broken world. But 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 that doesn't explain all of it. That explains a part of it. Um, Keller says it's it's half. I very often say, I think it's less. I think it's I think it's a pretty small sliver on the pie chart. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> there still is a big chunk of the pie chart. I don't know, but I'm going to cling to this God because He gives me hope and strength and sustenance even in the midst of. And for people who have lost a loved one and they know that that loved one is now with the lord because of their faith in christ that's a tremendous comfort does it totally explain it no does it does it take away all the pain no but um, but it puts it in a framework where w- we can say life is not absurd and meaningless now you have to stop asking me questions chris i i I'm no. people are going to say why does not it let the guests talk um but, but but so I, just, I mean where 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 have you landed as you've dealt with struggles like this? Mm. Uh,
1: I, as you were just talking, actually, it just reminded me of. Um, and again, I'm going to butcher this. I think it's I think it's Calvin who says this, and I remember it from one of my classes last year. But he says that faith doesn't eradicate grief; it sweetens it. Uh huh. And I think that in that's where i that's where i go with it that there's a sweetness there to grief that doesn't that faith doesn't eliminate or completely dissolve but it enhances it in a way such that i can i can cry to someone i can lament to someone and yes. know that while i don't have all the answers those tears are being stored and counted and one day my faith will give way to sight and maybe, you know, and maybe this, you know, this comes into that certainty question. You know, sometimes we think, oh, you know, when we when we see God face to face, that's when all our questions will be finally answered, as though suddenly in um, inexhaustible knowledge will be given to us and we'll be able to look back on things and say, Oh yeah, that's why this, 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 this and that happened. But I just wonder if we're waiting for the wrong thing if that's the case. Ah. And that faith that that sweetens grief in some ways doesn't require an absolute answer because you live the question. But that's only on the basis that there is that there is a person there who's holding you with those everlasting arms who will never leave yeah. you, who will never take you or let you go. What do you make of um,
0: that? Yeah, it's interesting. This wasn't the direction I was thinking this was going. So this is a <laughs> whole podcast about how do we handle suffering. No, no, this is so crucial and important. And I've got another interview coming up um, for our listeners. Be sure to look for the conversation I have with Elise Boros. Um, She thinks about this topic uh, deeply and and beautifully and writes about it beautifully. But this is such a crucial question. Um, we, We do have that beautiful promise that God will take away every tear and there will be no more crying and but but i think you're right it, it it may not be because we got an intellectual answer right. i think it's because yeah. we're in the presence of a loving god who even as we as we feel pain it's um there's a comfort that overshadows it it doesn't take it away so you know again that phrase uh, paul says we grieve but not like those who have no hope mm-hmm. um uh, there, there's there's so many people who have come at this and have landed that place. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote that the book Disappointment with God. He comes to the very end of the book and he says, in the end, it seems that we really only have two options. There's disappointment with God and there's disappointment without God. Okay. Uh, yes, there's still some disappointments, but the comfort and the strength um, is, a, is a resource that we can draw on. Um, right. Um, yeah. well, um, I can't think of a smooth transition, but, uh, <laughs> here's, uh so there's, so you're studying philosophy, you're studying, uh, you've had a background in apologetics. Um, so let me just ask in this direction, how, how is apologetics today different than it was Ten years ago, twenty years ago, or or even longer ago, what what are the new nuances, or challenges, or differences?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, thank you so much for asking, Randy. I love thinking about this kind of thing, and I think what, so. When I first started um, speaking evangelistically, it was kind of through local churches and on university campuses. The this was during kind of the heyday of militant atheism, you know, new atheism of of dawkins and dennett and harris and you know there was a lot of um there was a lot of kind of animosity and hostility towards the christian faith there were particular questions that were being being asked that were largely around credibility questions but i think in the as that kind of just dissolved <laughs> what what we've seen is that nature obviously abhors a vacuum and that we we need meaning we long for meaning we're we mm. we are you know, as as the philosopher Aristotle says, you know, all men by nature desire to know. We all want to know something, mm, and mm. and so I think after that, there's been a resurgence of questions around meaning and relevance and um, desirability. So I uh-huh. think what we've seen is a bit of a reordering. So it used to be questions around credibility: how do I know that this is true? And now it's more of the the emphasis on desirability how is this relevant why is this good for me so that isn't to say that credibility questions don't matter anymore but they now come after the desirability question so after you know you have a conversation with someone who says well why is this good news for me then the next question is well how do I know that this is real <laughs> how do I know this is true so it doesn't do away with that um, it's just a reordering that I've that I've noticed in the past 10 years or so yeah and I think with that, I don't know if you've seen that. So, and please tell me if I'm just rambling because you've got me on my hobby horse now.
0: <laughs> I like this hobby horse, and no, you're not just rambling. These are really crucial things, and and those two words are really important. You said uh, the shift has gone from the starting place being credibility to desirability. Um, the yeah. questions about credibility are still there, but but they seem to come second. So. Yes. Um the, the assumption is a lack of desirability. Oh, no, I don't want any part of that. That's just horrible. So we, we need to start with assuming this is not desirable to them, but I want to show them how very good it is. Um, yes. But keep going on that hobby horse. You're on a roll. This is, this is good. This is important.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, and I think the other thing that I've just seen coupled with that and probably is coming out more and more in like the social – Consciousness and imagination is yeah. this move towards meta modernity. And that has been around for a little while, you know, in the academies and in, in the academy and in politics and stuff. But whereas we had, you know, modernity that loved the credibility questions how do I yeah. know this is true? And then post modernity that loves the desirability questions of how is this good for me when there are so many truths and, you know, it's all just a power play. Now we're kind of in a, a meta modern point which is looking back at modernity and postmodernity and saying oh actually no we need some grand meta narratives <laughs> um and we need a little bit of Good. meaning too it's like the synthesis of of these two things coming together but the the catch there is that it's kind of there's this um, irony that's wedded to it so you have a grand meta narrative but you kind of know that it's a little bit fictional so I don't know. Have you seen the latest Barbie film, um, Randy? Uh,
0: um, I, I, I have not. Um, <laughs> but I'm really intrigued to see how you're going to bring Barbie into this. And maybe we could figure out some way that we get a royalty on uh, if people if people watch this, uh, listen to this podcast and then go see the Barbie film. Maybe part of the never mind. I'm sorry. No, why do you bring <laughs> up no, no, no this, is, this is important. Why, uh, how does that fit into this? Because, because I've read a bunch about it and I think I know where you're going, but but please go ahead.
1: Yeah, I well, I was just really struck by well, the whole film, really, was just fantastic. But the opening sequence, you know, it starts off with, you know, in the beginning and then it creates this kind of meta narrative of of this this world in which you know children played with these these toys these dolls which were which were great for them but they didn't know about anything better beyond them and then suddenly the barbie arrives and they're like wow this is amazing so then they start smashing their stereotypical like tea sets and their um and their dolls which are just you know they're just paltry compared to the amazingness of barbie and then you know the the film kind of kicks off from there so there's this there's this big story there as well, a wider story in um, in the Barbie film about, you know, patriarchy and, and men and women and how they relate to one another, and what is the purpose of life and what about um, meaning and reality? What what does it mean to be real and why is that desirable? And I don't want to give anyway away any, you know, too many spoilers, but it's that kind of thing. It's that meta modern um, desire for those grand meta narratives, but there's also that cheeky um, irony to it that's like but we all know this is kind of not not entirely true but there are yeah. bits of it that you might just you know want to want to hang on to
0: well i never thought that the new barbie movie was a philosophical inquiry but it it sure sounds like it is and uh ladies and gentlemen a a woman pursuing a phd in philosophy <laughs> endorses this film no this, this, <laughs> Um, no, you know, people are wrestling with these very, very deep issues. Mm-hmm. And um, just as Paul quoted poets to the mm-hmm. Athenian, Epicurean, and Stoics, um, w- we need to be able to quote the poets of our day. Now, now they're not quite so much poets. They're, they're the songwriters and the filmmakers. I think those are the two biggest poets of our day. Um, and they ask a, some really good questions. Very few movies are coming up with good answers, but they pose <laughs> the questions brilliantly, poignantly, painfully. Um, so it sounds like uh, this movie does that as well. Um mm. uh, you know, and there are there are also a bunch of books recently written by, People who would identify themselves as not religious, secular, they might even identify as atheists, but they're they're asking these questions and they they're rejecting the very very strict sterile materialism nihilism. They're saying there's got to be something else out there. I just read this book on awe, and I'm really mm-hmm. sorry I'm blanking out on the author's name um he's a social psychologist from i'm pretty sure he's at university of california at berkeley um and it's all of these areas in life that point to something bigger beauty music art friendship i mean it it sounds like cs lewis co-authored the book with him okay. except that he can't he can't land where lewis does it's boy this points to something bigger and it points to meaning. And so, so he's gently rejecting meaninglessness, nihilism, absurdity, Um, but, but he can't quite land on, this seems to be pointing to a supernatural personal God. But if people are willing to take the first couple of steps, now there's something more out there. When I see a beautiful sunset, I don't just stop because biology tells me there, there's something about it that causes me to say, what, what, what's, what's, what's beyond that? Why is there beauty? Um, mm-hmm. So again, these are things you're touching on. Now, your, your area of, of study, am I right? It, it touches a whole lot on science. Is that right? Science as a pointer to meaning?
1: Oh, it can well. The so the guy that I'm looking at, uh, Michael Polanyi, he he is was a premier scientist. So he started out in the sciences and then moved to philosophy later.
0: Ah, okay. So
1: I'm, I'm not so much of a, a philosopher of science, but I've kind of gone into it a little bit through through Michael Polanyi.
0: Okay. All right. So let me ask you more. So you said you wrote this for young Christians, young new in the faith. Did you also write it for a young person, meaning someone who's in their teens, 16, 17, 18, uh, college years, or or is, you, is your audience, as far as age go, sort of broader than that?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. I think initially it, there was a thought of how to help the person who's younger in their faith, and that can be at any age. But I think one of the things that I've... I've really been encouraged by is is receiving kind of feedback from all kinds of people at all ages and uh, and stages who have read it, and you know there's something in there that they've just really resonated with and uh, found helpful as we think about the meaning crisis so no, I think that was its kind of u s p like this is how um the publishing house wanted to kind of market it, but I think it I've written it for a broader a broader audience, so I hope that comes through
0: nice, nice. Well, I, I want to go back a little bit. You you said we're in an age of meta modernity. I don't know if I've heard anybody else say that before. Um, but I'm really glad to hear it. Uh, so there, there was <laughs> there was modernity where we, you know, we argued about truth and truth really matters. And then there was postmodernity that said, No, there is no such thing as truth, and everybody writes their own meta-narrative. But but there were these screaming inconsistencies in that of um there there is no meta narrative that sounds like a meta narrative um there are no overarching truths it sounds like you're saying that's an overarching truth so 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 the the conversations during that time were they were pretty frustrating i think we you know we would try to point out to people that they believed in a meta narrative and they would say no they wouldn't and <laughs> it was just um yeah. but but so now if i'm if i'm hearing you correctly it's um, we, we can say to people you know it sounds to me like we 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 want answers about truth but we also want answers about how does this help me how is this desirable so we want we want both truth and goodness and so we can start by agreeing with people rather than fighting and arguing we agree yes we want truth and we want meaning and goodness and, and purpose so here's where I found it here's where, how the gospel, provides goodness and truth and doesn't pit them against each other as things were happening for a while. Am I, am I close to uh, making sense in this?
1: Oh yeah, hugely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, you know, those two things thinking about truth and goodness. um, There's also beauty, isn't there? I mean, they're one of the, you know, the classic posh term, you know, transcendental properties of being that, that is in everything. And, I think the the meta the meta moderns, I, I was just looking at my lecture notes actually because <laughs> I'm I'm quoting this this guy called Hansi Freinacht who wrote a book called The Listening Society. This was back in 2017, and this is a Meta Modern Guide to, to Politics. And he wrote this, he wrote, Meta modernism is qualitatively very, very different from postmodernism. It accepts progress, hierarchy, sincerity, spirituality, development, grand narratives, party politics, both thinking and much else. It puts forward dreams and makes suggestions and yet it's still being born. So I think it's that there's still a a becoming to it, but there's a stronger being to it as well, which I think wasn't there wasn't a stable center, you know, to post-modernity. yeah, so I, I think I wouldn't want to say I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Randy. That you know, that metamodernity kind of defines everyone and everyone's everyone's views. You know, we're all on a a spectrum. I think from modernity, post-modernity, metamodernity, depending on a whole range of kind of social and and cultural factors. But the 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 rise in um, popularity and traction for metamodernity is definitely more visible now than it was in 2010, when it was first kind of starting to be on the, the academic horizon anyway.
0: I, I, I just think this is wonderful news for us for trying to connect w- with, with non-believers. Um, I mm-hmm. think there was a period of time where it was really hard to connect because people were saying things like there's no such thing as truth and then we would say yeah but you know you know uh, Jesus said uh, I am the way the truth and the life and w- w- we just thought that that was such a powerful argument i mean it's jesus's words coming from the bible and we we just thought this will surely cut through and it and it does for a lot of people but for a whole lot of people it's like well that that may be your truth but that's not my truth and and it just it was very very difficult to get traction the phrase you said earlier mm-hmm. whereas now i think we can say there is such a thing as truth and there's also such a thing as beauty and wouldn't it be wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have a coherent frame of thinking about life that uh, that that celebrates the beauty and the truth and the goodness and not see these things as these watertight compartments um i I, I want to say those things to non-christians I know of you know do you, do you ever go to art museums well who's your favorite artist what do you what, what do you like about that and then to join them in yes, you're right, isn't it breathtaking isn't <laughs> um yeah. Uh, yesterday, by the way, we were setting up this room that I'm in for recording this podcast because because this is a brand new thing. Now we're doing video as well as audio, mm-hmm. which which um, this one, is new right? for us. You're the you're the first one, and um, <laughs> I, maybe I should I, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned this. I, I I I'm more nervous about this than I have been for all the others. But we came up with this idea of putting some flowers behind me, and. I just, I love flowers and they're all different. (laughs) And um, maybe I'm I'm thinking there's going to be a different bunch of flowers each time. Flowers just so, so intrigue me. And, and if, when people say, ah, yes, evolution created them to be so beautiful because the bees are attracted to them and then pollination or whatever. Yeah. I'm sure that that's part of it, but they're just so stunningly beautiful. And Mm -hmm um, different colors and shapes and, and how, and, and yet how, when I cut them and put them in a a vase, 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 either way, (laughs) after a while, they die. Um, there, there's a real ugliness to them when they die. That's also telling us something. Um, Mm. anyway, so, um, uh, well, we we really need you to finish up this PhD thing so you can start writing more books like More Truth for the rest of us. Um, I, I think you've got a perspective that that's so important in apologetics and evangelism, and I I just want to encourage you, and I want to encourage our our listeners and viewers uh, that. Uh, there's some great opportunities for us today and this approach to apologetics can help. Any any last thoughts before we bring this to a close?
1: Oh, thank you. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is um have you come across you know Simone um Vile, Vale. I can never pronounce her last name.
0: She's uh, I've only read a few little snippets of her, but it's amazing how often her name comes up in these kinds of discussions. So yeah, please say more about her.
1: Oh, thank you. There's there's this lovely extract in her book, Gravity and Grace, where she um, talks about these two prisoners who um, who are divided by a wall and their cells adjoin one another. And the only way that they can communicate with one another is by knocking knocking on the wall. And so the wall is the thing that separates them but it's also their primary means of communication as well. And I think that's just, I find that really encouraging, you know, when I'm thinking about talking about Jesus and thinking about meaning and the truth and goodness and beauty that the things that we often think divide us as a wall and there is a wall, um, but that wall is also the means of communication. You know, you can tap in the other side and people will hear and listen and respond.
0: Oh, man. that oh, I love that image. I love it. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, well, we could talk a whole lot more, but um, uh, we do need to bring this to a close. Christy Mayer, thanks so much for joining me on Questions That Matter. We'll have a bunch of uh, show notes below of some different things we've uh, mentioned. Um, uh, please do check out our C.S. Lewis Institute website. Uh, our award-winning website, I might add. And um, uh, we hope that all the resources there will be so encouraging to you as you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Thanks so much.